This season of What It Takes is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Google Nest Renew. Nest Renew is a new service that leverages eligible Nest thermostats to help you use less expensive or cleaner energy at times when more carbon-free sources are available on the grid. Even a lot of energy nerds, you don't, they don't know about marginal emissions intensity. They don't recognize that the grid is fluctuating continuously from hour to hour, minute to minute. And so being able to empower customers with the ability to automatically just use energy when it's a little less carbon rich and kind of a little less of a strain on the grid, that is just this amazing thing that we can do. That's Ben Brown, the product lead for Google Nest Renew. A bit later in the show, Ben will describe why Nest Renew is so valuable for people who want to support a clean energy future right from their homes. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. To deploy enough solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles, and lithium-ion batteries needed to decarbonize the grid, we'll need more of the critical minerals that make these technologies possible. Growing demand for clean technology means an even bigger demand for lithium, nickel, cobalt, copper, manganese, and other minerals. Right now, the world is on track to double its overall mineral requirements for clean technology by 2040. Right now, our domestic mining capacity for these materials is a fraction of what exists overseas. And with the Inflation Reduction Act requiring EV manufacturers to source at least 40% of their critical materials for EV batteries domestically by 2024, demand has already quickly surpassed supply. The individual tax credit is now tied to these sourcing requirements to prevent the subsidizing of cars that have battery components sourced from a country of foreign concern, like China. Luckily, battery recycling could help us make up the difference. But today, the U.S. recycles less than 5% of its lithium-ion batteries. And that's exactly what today's guest, Megan O'Connor, CEO and co-founder of EnthCycle, is changing. EnthCycle is solving the need for more critical minerals, really the true building blocks of the clean energy economy. We have a severe lack of them here, especially in the Western world, in North America and Europe. And so we've developed a new refining technology that can help bring more of those uh, to the market so that we can continue on our path towards electrification. Megan and the EnthCycle team believe that they can cut through tons of electronic waste generated every year while shoring up the country's supply of the critical minerals needed to get us to net zero emissions. The U.S. government lists 50 mineral commodities that are crucial to the economy and national security. They call these critical minerals. Alongside lithium, the batteries powering electronics and EVs wouldn't be possible without cobalt, nickel, manganese, graphite, and other critical minerals. So all of these metals that are in all of our technologies, and so the definition critical comes from both how risky they are to get from a supply chain standpoint and how difficult they are to mine out of the ground. They're the backbone of the clean energy economy. Rare earth elements like neodymium magnets make EV motors run and wind turbines generate power. And miles more copper wiring will be needed to enable the rollout of more renewables. 
Together, these and other minerals are the new oil fueling the energy transition. But just like oil, mining, processing, and recycling these materials can be dangerous, energy-intensive, highly polluting, and end up benefiting governments and corporations with horrendous human rights records. Encycle needs to exist in the world, again, because we are really trying to change the way that we mine and refine metal, uh, which is really the hardest or one of the hardest areas to decarbonize on our path towards electrification. Right? We have all these wonderful technologies like electric vehicles and wind turbines and solar panels, but the way all of these are, are made and manufactured with these metals is, is horrendously dirty. The vast majority of our supply comes from uh, very unstable, uh, you know, geopolitical countries uh, where the U.S. Uh, and Canada and Europe just need to have more control. Enter the oyster, Encycle's device that uses electro extraction to selectively filter out individual minerals from e-waste. Think of it like a 2,000 square foot Brita water filter. It uses carbon filters stacked in layers to pull out mineral waste products from water, and that is just the start. We've taken that same basic idea of filtering a aqueous or water solution with metals in it with carbon, but figured out a way to electrify or push electricity across that carbon filter so that it selectively removes one metal over another. And so in our system, we have multiple of these carbon filters stacked in series, each with a different current that's applied. So you can imagine that at each different stage of our unit, we can pull out one metal over another, and that's how we're able to pull out these various uh, metals as different metal products. And just like an oyster filters out water and dirt to make pearls, the first commercial unit in Boston is filtering black mass, the fine powdered end product made of shredded batteries at recycling sites, to make nickel and cobalt. But recycling batteries is just the beginning. In the near future, Encycle systems can be adapted to refine and process ore coming directly from mining sites, thus enabling 92% less emissions than traditional processes. And that's really what the world is missing, is, is this flexible uh, refining technology that can take any variety of feedstocks, whether it's, it's raw ore coming out of the ground or end-of-life batteries or any other type of industrial waste, and be able to efficiently and cleanly turn it into the metals that we need for all of our technologies. And that's really the heart of what Encycle does. I spoke with Megan about what it takes to build an entirely new mineral supply chain from the ground up. We also talked about developing Encycle's technology from the lab to the field and the challenges of building hardware. We started with her childhood in upstate New York, where time spent outdoors and an early love of chemistry put her on a path towards solving big problems in and outside the lab. Megan, going to your early life and early education, you grew up in Plattsburgh, New York with your parents. Your mom was a food service director for the local high school, and your dad was a special agent for Homeland Security at the U.S.-Canada border. You were right on Lake Champlain, so your family spent a lot of time outdoors, camping, hiking, boating. How do you think your childhood and your early environmental exposure impacted your life and career? Yeah, I think growing up in the Adirondacks, essentially, we were right, right above, right, the Adirondacks and, and hiking every day. Uh, and I had a lot of friends who were 46ers, uh, right, who hiked all the high peaks and uh, being out on my family's boat every summer uh, as long as we possibly could until it was too cold, um, I think definitely had an impact. Um, and our family vacations uh, weren't too sunny locations, despite my desire <laughs> to go to the beach, but we were always camping. <laughs> and so I think a lot of that exposure definitely had an impact on the 
the direction I took, especially when I got to college and was trying to pick which uh, science discipline I really loved. Chemistry was always something that I I loved in high school, but I didn't necessarily know what direction that would take me. And then I found environmental chemistry and really fell in love with how you could look at things like the effect of personal care products on lakes and oceans and ponds and, and everything, you know, in there and in between. And so that really was impactful for me to work on. And then that led me to uh, grad school where I switched to environmental engineering, but still very environmentally focused and just working, you know, at, uh, on projects at a, at a much larger scale. Mm. And I know your love for chemistry started way back in high school. Did you have a sense of what you would do career-wise even back in high school? I did not know. I actually, I, I started college as an undecided science major, <laughs> which, because... Huh. And then at what point did you choose yeah, chemistry? Yeah, I, I chose chemistry actually in my sophomore year. And so I, I took all chemistry classes and a couple physics classes knowing that that was likely the direction I wanted to go in because I loved chemistry in high school, uh, but wanted to see what was out there. Took one biology class, was like, nope, this isn't for me. <laughs> I don't want to work with living things. Um, <laughs> um, and I think just the environmental piece really stuck with me. I mean, seeing the direct impact that things can, how they can affect the environment and how uh, just our daily lives um, have so much impact on the world was just um, amazing for me to work on. And so it was a natural progression for me to to choose a chemistry major. And then when I started to get into the environmental aspect, um, the transition seemed, again, very fitting for me going into environmental engineering. So after graduating from Union in 2012, you began your PhD in environmental engineering at Duke University, which is where you met one of your co-founders, Desiree Plata, who served as one of your PhD advisors. Uh, you also became a visiting researcher at Yale University in 2014. What was the focus of your research? Yeah, so when I started grad school in 2012, um, Desiree was actually a very young professor. I was only her second student ever. And so she gave me the freedom to sort of choose whatever project I wanted, which sounded great. <laughs> if you talk to other PhD students, they're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> uh, so looking back, my first project was in oil and gas. And so I was looking at how when you uh, when they do the hydraulic fracturing process, right, um, they have all the flowback water that comes up out of the well uh, with all of the chemicals that they injected, right, to crack open the shale bed to get the gas out in the first place, um, and how effective the wastewater treatment facilities were in getting all of those chemicals out of that flowback water before it went into the, the lakes and the streams, uh, mostly up in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And so what I was doing was I was actually like hiking up the stream to the effluent pipe. So where the, the clean water, I'm doing air quotes, clean water was coming out of those wastewater treatment <laughs> facilities and taking samples by hand uh, to, to test them to see what was remaining. And, you know, we got a lot of good research out of that. It was uh Field testing and sampling for for those out there who have done that, right, is fun for maybe like the first two trips you make. And then you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and so I kind of hit that wall of this is great. We've gotten a lot of great research out of this, but um, I wanted to build technology that was going to have an impact in industry. And, and oil and gas just wasn't uh, open to innovation. Um, and so that's when I decided to switch uh, over to the project, which ultimately led me to the technology we now use at Encycle. Um, and that was, again, in 2014, just after I had moved up to Yale with Desiree when she got her new faculty position up there. And tell me about making that pivot. What was that like? 
So making that pivot was very interesting. So it was sort of three different events that happened at the same time. And I think it was really all luck uh, if I look back on it now. And the first was meeting my co-founder, Chad Vasitas, who was a full-time professor at Harvard at the time. So he ended up being on my PhD committee after I had met him, uh, just giving a talk. It was an academic conference. He was giving a talk on this technology that he had developed, which again, is now the core piece of what we use here at Encycle. But he had developed it for a completely different application in wastewater treatment. And I said, wow, that's a really cool technology. I would have never thought to combine water filtration with electricity, which is, again, how the oyster unit works uh, today. Um, and, you know, just sort of had a, call, a chat with him. And, and then we, we didn't speak for, for a while after that. Um, around that same time, I was also um, in the hallway uh, at, up at Yale in New Haven and, and just overheard one of the famous professors there talking about how he was inviting folks from industry to come to Yale to um, have them talk about corporate sustainability issues they saw coming down the road five to 10 years uh, because he directed Yale's uh, Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering and wanted to help set the research direction uh, over the next decade. And I said, wow, that's really cool, right? I went to grad school to try and build technology for industry. So like, I really want to be in this meeting. And it was all about green electronics. And the the third thing that sort of happened at the same time was I was actually just starting to research and really getting into all things critical metals, right? What are critical metals, minerals? Why are they important for the clean energy economy? And I couldn't believe that nobody was talking about the fact that we don't have enough of these minerals to really transition in the time frame that we need to. And so I was curious if the industry folks that were going to be in that room were, were thinking the same thing, and maybe it just wasn't hitting mainstream media. And so, of course, this this green electronics summit, they called it, was completely closed to students and faculty. Um, but I was really determined to be in that meeting. So I banged down this professor's door for about three weeks until I think he was just finally sick of me. <laughs> Didn't want me to bother him anymore. Um, but he finally let me in as a scribe. He said, all right, we need somebody to take notes. If you come in, you can't bring your laptop, but you can take notes by hand. And I said, fine, I'll do it. Um, so I sat there for taking notes for nine hours and was really just by a hand. fly on the wall listening by hand, I know. You, I mean, it was so like top secret at the time, which now like they don't care if I talk about it. But um, I, I wasn't even allowed to bring my laptop in. Um, yeah, nine hours. They that all I heard over and over again from all of these very different companies, um, mostly in consumer electronics. They all talked about the fact that they didn't know where their supply would come from in the future, right? Because think EVs also have lithium ion batteries, but you know orders of magnitude. Uh, higher volumes, right? And so if when the EVs started to come online, they knew that supply would be even more constrained than it already was, and they were very worried about where they'd get uh, their cobalts and other critical minerals from. The second problem I heard from all of them was the fact that they wanted to recycle and knew that recycling was important for a variety of reasons, right? I mean, the leaders uh, in industry for all things green and transparent, right? Apple was in there. Um, we're all like, we know what we need to figure out end-of-life waste management, but there's really no affordable or economic or, you know, easily implemented technology to be able to do this, right? All the existing technology uh, or systems was really overseas. There was no capacity in the United States to do that. And so, you know, I walked out of that room thinking like, why has nobody thought to combine these two problems and, and really kill two birds with one stone? If you recycle all of the end-of-life devices that we have, you could pull all these metals out and basically create a secondary supply. And so I was, you know, remembering the conversation and Chad's, you know, pitch or, or talk that he gave. And I was like, wow, I wonder if this technology 
has ever worked for metal recycling. I wonder if he's tested that before or wonder if he would let me work on that. And so I actually walked right to my advisor's office, Desiree's office, and I said, I really want to call Chad and see if he's willing to do this. So would you let me switch my project? And she's like, well, uh, you're at the end of your third year, so this would kind of be uh, academic suicide, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what she called it? Academic suicide? Yes, academic suicide. Um, She's like, you might never graduate and it doesn't necessarily look good for you to be a student forever. And I said, that's fine. I really want to do this. I think this is this is going to be something. Like, I see opportunity here. I don't know what if it's going to work, but I at least want to take my shot. And so Chad loved it. He was like, I've actually always wanted students to work on this, but never had anyone interested. So, like, go for it. Um, and so the three of us worked on it for the next, you know, two and a half, three years. And somehow I, I managed to graduate on time, I will say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't sleep much that those last two years. Um, and it worked really well. And we sort of had like an oh shit moment of like, wow, this really works. And now what are we going to do? Um, and so I had no idea that my career would take me to being an entrepreneur. But when the opportunity presented itself, I absolutely had to jump on it. Um, I I always say that I think PhD students make the best entrepreneurs because we're used to being poor and we're used to failing all the time. And so like, what, you know, what other, what else do you need to be an entrepreneur? Uh, You fit right in. You're like, wow, this is just the same. Um, So it's just an extended PhD, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) And what was that moment like when you realized that the opportunity was there to have this not just be academic research, but to turn this into a company? Like, when did that click? And when did you have that conversation with Desiree and Chad to say, I want you to become my co-founders. Yeah, so it clicked um, maybe two or three weeks before I defended. So it wasn't very long before I was ready to leave. And I was like, I had been interviewing at other places. Some of the folks that were in that room with me at the Green Electronics Summit, I was interviewing with. So I, like, I had a, a plan to stay in this space, um, just go work for a, a company. And I wasn't in love with the idea of working at a large corporation. So started to look into startups and I was like, oh my gosh, like, why would I go either give this IP to, to a larger company or go work for another startup when I could maybe start my own? And I sat down with Desiree and Chad in Harvard Square at a bar and said, listen, I, I really want to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'll find the right people to help me and I think we could really commercialize this technology and make a difference in the world, right? We've done the the really, really rough back-of-the-envelope calculations that this thing could be, you know, profitable um, and economic. And we didn't even really know what that meant at the time. Um, but uh, we all sat down and we all said, yes, like, we'll, like Desiree and Chad, right, they were full-time professors. They're like, we'll give you, you know, the time that we have, but this will really be on you. And, um, you know, we think this can be something. And so they were all very supportive um, in helping me, you know, with that first step. And then I went online and I started Encycle LLC the next day. <laughs> <laughs> was that daunting when they said, you know, we'll support you, but we're not going to join you full time. So this is going to be on you. Yeah. Again, I don't think it really hit me at the time how much work it is to start a company. <laughs> um, and I think too, because PhD students are sort of like thrown out to the wolves and you have to do that anyway. I was sort of already, already in that mentality. And I was like, this is the same. Like this can't be any harder than what I've already done, mm. which I don't know if it's harder, it's just different, right? It's just a very different type of work. Um, and a lot of the early years was was continuing the technology development. So I really just felt like I was continuing on and then building the team around me and trying to learn, right, the business skills and, and what I needed to know. I actually thought about applying, and I did apply to MBA programs, right, executive MBA programs, full-time MBA programs. And I got a lot of advice saying, like, you don't necessarily need to do more schooling, 
but just make sure you you surround yourself with the right people who can help you learn what you need to learn and when you need to learn it. So that's I took that advice and tried to run with it. And the first program we ended up in, which was a Department of Energy program called Innovation Crossroads. It's the sister program to Cyclotron Road for folks who, who are more aware of that program. Um, and that was a really nice landing place for us to, again, be able to have free access to a national lab. I mean, every single resource we could have ever wanted was there. Um, So highly, highly recommend these programs. And then they had the support network that I needed uh, trying to learn, you know, what is a business model? What business model should, you know, I mean, like what, like (laughs) business model canvas? Like I had never heard of that. Um, So the really basic things that, um, you know, most entrepreneurs know, which me coming out of a technical background didn't. And so that was super helpful and just getting me up to speed as quickly as possible. And in those first few years, you received about a million dollars in non-dilutive grant capital. Where did that capital come from and what did you do with it? So the first, uh, just over 500000 came from Department of Energy's Innovation Crossroads program. And that was really used to hire my first employee, uh, Emily, who's still with us today, uh, up here in Boston. And developed the technology from the, the teeny tiny little system that fit in the palm of my hand to something that was more realistic in size um, that eventually helped us raise our seed round. Uh, and then the other grant that we got was uh, from the state of Tennessee. Um, so it was a matching funds for the National Science Foundation grant that we won, which was altogether between the state money and the National Science Foundation excuse me, National Science Foundation money was just over 500K. And so with those two grants, we were able to make it to 2020. And that's when we raised our first seed round. In October 2020, Encycle raised a 3.2 million seed round led by Clean Energy Ventures. What was it like raising the seed round, especially because October 2020 was a pretty difficult time in the world? And I imagine it was a difficult time to be raising. It it was. So I have impeccable timing as a founder with my first <laughs> uh, equity raise asking. I was actually on my way to pitch to lots of different Boston investors uh, the weekend in, in March, excuse me, March 2020, when the world shut down. So I was I was actually in my layover in Philadelphia and they were like, turn around or you'll never get home. And they were like, we probably can't tell you this. They were like, just just get a flight home. And I was like, okay. So I listened to them because I was like, I don't want to be stuck in Boston. I don't know anybody there. Um, (laughs) So I flew back and then the world really, I mean, all of our calls that were, you know, pre-scheduled with investors were all canceled. I think everybody was like, we need to figure out what's going on. I mean, as everyone at home, right, was, was also freaking out, like what was, what was happening in the world. And, um, then finally, in like the end of May, early June, I think the world, at least the venture world, started to open up a little bit more, and people were a little bit more uh, comfortable talking to new like new companies. And that's when we met Clean Energy Ventures and worked through the diligence process over the summer. It was still difficult because raising remotely was a whole whole different worlds. Pitching on Zoom, it is actually a skill. It is. It was very difficult at first. Um, now I feel like it's so easy and it's like, oh, how did I struggle with this? But you know, I, we had never had video calls. Um, so we were very new to that world. And so getting comfortable with, with us as founders, like raising money from, from somebody that you'd never met in person was, was interesting. And I felt like they obviously felt the same way of like, these are founders we might not meet for two years, uh, in person. So let's hope they're real. Um, (laughs) um, But once we got over that hump of of the the deep diligence and the uncertainty in the spring, 
um, that it sort of was, was I don't want to say easy, but it was definitely more manageable from there. And, and then I think, right, the venture world kind of exploded towards the end of 2020, 2021. And we were able to, to really, you know, push through and get to that place where it was much, much easier on founders to raise money. Mm-hmm. And how... How short on runway were you getting leading up to the seed round? Because I imagine, like you said, you know, you had plans in March and then they got delayed quite a while. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as probably every founder has felt, uh, we were we were pretty close to having to stop pay ourselves, uh, at least me and Chad, who were full-time at the time. Um, so we were about six weeks out from having to make that decision. So that's always a scary thing, right? I mean, we did have runway to continue to pay our two employees, but to not be able to pay yourself is always is also very scary, right? I had to go to my husband, who was, who was my fiance at the time, and say, listen, like, I don't know if I'm going to have a salary, so let's maybe think about what the next couple of months look like. And thankfully, I mean, we were all sitting at home, so there wasn't too many expenses. But still, I mean, that was still a scary conversation to have and to think about. So, you know, but we we kept uh, really focusing on the technology and the fundraise, and we eventually, you know, got to the finish line. But it's always a pretty terrifying moment when you think about, like, okay, how do I think through this? How do I extend my runway for the people who really depend on us, right? It's not just us yeah. at this point. It's also yeah. our employees. Uh, what was your husband's response? <laughs> he was like, well, we were used to being poor because you made zero dollars as a grad student. So it'll just be like two years ago. <laughs> to your point so, on grad students uh, being great founders. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, it's fine. We were we were used to having a little bit of money and now we'll just go back to that like <laughs> steady state of, you know, month by month, like make sure we can buy groceries and pay our rent. Uh, and yeah. I was like, this is why I love you. You're very supportive. Uh, most people would not have this reaction. So thank you for your support. And <laughs> this is a very tumultuous time. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up, Megan and the Endcycle team break down what kind of impact their technology could have on commercial mining operations. But first, a word from our exclusive sponsor of this season of What It Takes, Google Nest. Ben Brown is the product lead at Google Nest. He's been building home automation products for 15 years, including as the founder of Google Wi-Fi. Your responsibility as a product designer, product developer, is to build the best product possible, to just make it as easy and simple and enjoyable and make people's experience in their home better. Today, Ben is focused on Nest Renew, a new service that helps you support a clean energy future with your eligible Nest thermostat. And so if we can have customers at the forefront of showing the power of what we call energy shift, but being able to do that across millions of households to be able to kind of showcase what is possible is something that we really believe is critical to speeding up the transition. With a feature called Energy Shift, Nest Renew lets you heat and cool your home when more clean energy is available on the grid. And if you're on a time of use rate with your electric utility, Energy Shift can help you shift usage to times when energy is less expensive. We are all key components and key parts of that solution. The massive challenge in making that uh, work really, really well uh, without a ton of unnecessary infrastructure is really going to make it so that all homes and businesses are able to kind of use energy in an intelligent way to really support that transition. Want to do more to address climate change? Nestrenew offers a simple place to start. To learn more about Nestrenew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. And so I know Endcycle's initial strategy was focused on e-waste recycling only, um, not, not focused on the mining space, but at the suggestion of Clean Energy Ventures as part of the diligence, you did explore and then eventually decided to, to apply the technology also to the mining industry. What did that conversation with Clean Energy Ventures look like? 
Yeah. So that was a really interesting conversation. And, and we had actually thought about the mining world, right? Because that's where the biggest impact can be had in this industry that's never seen innovation, you know, in over a hundred years. But we, I didn't even know how to approach the mining industry, right? It's such a it's such a large industry, not just in terms of the market size, but also the the, the volumes of materials that we'd have to process. Uh, and so it was it was a great conversation to have and to see that they saw the potential for the technology both on the recycling side and the mining side. Because we've always seen ourselves as a true chemical refining company for metals. And so the, the technology itself is pretty agnostic when it comes to like where it, it, like if it had, you know, feelings of where we got the material from. Um, and so it's, it was exciting to see that, that venture investors were, were getting excited about an industry that honestly, like we are not going to be generating revenue from for, for potentially a decade, right? I mean, this is a, a very long-term game. And so we were not really, the reason we chose not to pitch mining was A, because it was hard to approach that. And then B, we didn't think we'd be able to raise venture money off of that with just the long horizon for for paybacks. Um, so we were really thrilled. And one of the reasons why we chose Clean Energy Ventures is because they saw that and understood the long timeline. And to make real impact, sometimes it does take a little bit longer than than your traditional, I would say, like 18, to, 18 months to two years, right? So between your seed round and the Series A, you were able to scale Cycles technology 10x. Tell me about that 10x growth. You know, how, how, how did you go about building the technology in the early days? Yeah, we were able to scale really quickly because we have an amazing team of engineers. And so there's Chad and I who really understand the chemistry side of things, which is, right, we did the early, like, basic science to make sure, like, in theory or like in practice, this works, right? Okay, the science works, check. Okay, the, but how do you get that from something that is, you know, centimeters in size to meters in size, right? Uh, and so we we knew we needed engineers who, not just chemical engineers, but process engineers who have been out in the field really building these, these massive systems that the mining industry would look at and say like, yes, that is scale. And so what we did was we found, you know, uh, not just great uh, chemical engineers, but also a really great engineering leader. Um, so we have Chris Thorne on our team, who's our VP of engineering, and he's he's phenomenal. And he's worked in, you know, this industry for a very long time and, and was really able to um, help us move very quickly and, and things that are very hard to do. And so uh, that's really my strategy of, of hiring all my leadership team is you can have somebody that has the background, but if you don't have real leaders in the company to help you bring your team to that next level, you'll never succeed. And so, you know, finding him and having him really unite the team towards a single goal um, was was super, super important and helped us move, you know, light years faster than we would have otherwise. Um, and so we're very thankful to have him and his, just his, you know, background and expertise and, you know, going from something that was centimeters to meters took us, you know, under three years, which seems maybe like a long time, but it is light years in terms of technology development. So we've been running for a very long time and we're excited to finally be at commercial scale to get it out into the world to start making an impact as soon as we can. In February of this year, Encycle raised a 12.5 million Series A, co-led by the investment arm of Frankstall, one of the largest privately held steel distribution companies in Europe, and Volo Earth. And that brings total capital raised to 18 million. Uh, I know you're in the process now of raising a Series B, but I'm curious for the A, what was it like raising the A, especially compared to the seed round? And then what did the Series A capital enable you to do in terms of continuing to scale the technology? The Series A round was 
as everyone says, fundraising is never easy, but it was easier than the seed rounds, uh, right? Just being in the Boston network and, and in the in the clean tech world for a little bit longer, right? Building those relationships is definitely a crucial part of fundraising and being able to do it as quickly as possible. Um, I think some mistakes that founders make and definitely something that I did in the seed round was uh, not build those relationships early enough and expect investors to get comfortable with me in, you know, a very short period of time. Um, and so having those relationships was definitely um, a catalyst for us being able to do the Series A in the timeframe that we wanted to. And um, having a, the 10X system, right, being closer to commercial scale and having that very clear vision of where we could get to and how quickly we could get to the 125X, I think was definitely helpful as well. And so once we got that $12.5 million in, we were able to put that right to work in scaling up to that 125x commercial system and being able to bring on the full team that we really needed to execute uh, in getting projects out the door and to start generating revenue. And so we now have a full leadership team. Our team is now almost 30 people. And so it's been uh, really great to have that money and now to see, again, the, the clear line of vision or have that clear line of vision to what you know, revenue looks like and making that impact in the field. How would you describe Encycle's technology to a non-technical person? The way that I like to think of the Encycle technology at a really high level is like a Brita water filter. But yes, the Brita water filter that you probably have in your fridge at home uh, that hopefully filters out maybe any heavy metals that you have in that drinking water. So when you pour that water through your 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 entire Brita filter, there's a activated carbon filter in there that actually collects all the metals in a very non-selective way when you pour it through. We've taken that same basic idea of taking metals that are dissolved in water uh, with an activated carbon filter, but we figured out a way to push an electrical current across that carbon filter so that it selectively removes one metal over another. And so that's how we're able to get all these different metal products out is that we have multiple of these carbon filters stacked in series, each with a different electrical current pushed across it to pull out each of these different metals as the metal products themselves. And Cycle is set to deploy your first on-site unit in Q2 of next year with your first customer being an e-waste company. Who will your next customers be and how do you think you're going to get them? Yeah, so all of our customers over the next two years will be in the industrial waste recycling space. So all customers that have... Uh, that have been in the collection business, say, for the past you know, 5, 10, even 20 years, right? These are family-owned businesses that have been collecting internal combustion engine cars, so regular autos and shredding them, sending the scrap overseas to be refined, maybe batteries, maybe mostly lead acid, and now are moving over to lithium-ion now that they're more prevalent in the market. Think um, heavy alloy scrap, so steel, nickel, right? There's lots of uh, of these different companies, over 6,000 of them actually, that exist just in the U.S. alone that um, have all this great heavy metal-heavy material but don't have any way to chemically process it, right? That's the major pain point that we have here in the Western world, really North America and in, in Europe, is that we don't have... Uh, the chemical refining process to turn that scrap metal into the metal products that go back into manufacturing, right? The the way that we do it today is that those folks would have to ship it all the way back overseas to China to be chemically refined. And so what we can do is partner with them directly and help them to chemically process that material and just 
by charging them a fee. So it's under a tolling arrangement. So we just charge them a fee to upgrade that material. We hand it right back to them and they have a product that is at least three times uh, the value of the original waste that they had. Uh, and again, that product is is domestic. It has a very low carbon footprint. And so it meets all of the Inflation Reduction Act requirements and the EU requirements that are needed right, to, to be compliant with the new regulations that we have as we move forward in the electrification movement. So yeah, your units are on-site at e-waste recycling facilities or eventually at mining locations. Uh, And the business model is charging on a per kilo of waste that's processed. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So you own and operate the systems and then you're just charging on a volume basis. Yes. Yes. We own and operate the systems for all scrap projects. And yes, it's a tolling fee based on uh, per kilogram of waste or other product that we upgrade for you. And then for the mining and refining projects, right, much larger scale. Um, And so we will switch business models there to selling the units and then helping to operate under a more traditional service model. Uh, You mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, which obviously monumental for our industry in so many ways, uh, including a provision that requires companies to source at least 40% of their critical materials for EV batteries domestically by 2024. uh, And uh, that's required in order to qualify for the EV tax credit. So how are you all thinking about the Inflation Reduction Act? Were you anticipating it? What does it mean for EnCycle? Personally, I was not anticipating it being signed, so I was very excited, (laughs) right? As you said, it's very monumental in terms of what it will do for states moving forward in this clean energy transition. Um, for Encycle, I think it's it's also mo- uh, very mon- monumental. It's very exciting, um, right? This is the type of legislation that we've been waiting for because right, we were always on this path to be producing a very localized domestic source of materials that have a very low carbon footprint. And so this just accelerates our ability to, to really get into the market because we will be the only ones to produce domestic critical minerals like nickel uh, for companies in, 20, in the 2024 timeframe. And so, you know, we're very excited about this and are trying to move as quickly as we can um, from a commercialization standpoint to get out there with all of our customers to start processing this material. And so, you know, I think uh, what one of the things that the world might not realize is, you know, how exciting this this legislation was. It caused a really large supply chain problem, even a bigger one than we already had, right? So it just sort of added fuel to the fire in terms of, uh, the, especially if you think about nickel. So in the world of nickel, we're technically in a world of oversupply, which means we have more nickel than we actually need to make the electric vehicles and all the other you know, clean energy technology that needs nickel. But now the Inflation Reduction Act, and the EU has very similar legislation, uh, cuts off about 80%, above 80% of that nickel. And so 80% of the world's nickel is no longer considered compliant because of where it's sourced from. And so the major area that that is sourced from is Indonesia, which is which is directly tied to Chinese refining. And so because the vast majority of Indonesian nickel uh, is owned and refined by Chinese companies. Uh, the U.S. has cut that off and, and it says, nope, no longer compliant. You can't use that material as an OEM if you want to be able to give your consumers that $7,500 tax credit. And so if you look at the supply of compliant nickel, as we call it, 
compared to the demand for nickel over the next several years throughout the the end of the decade, we're actually undersupplied. And so there's a significant deficit of about 150,000 tons, which might not seem like a lot, but that is a a lot of nickel to be undersupplied for. And that's really where Encycle can step in and help to provide that 150,000 tons of nickel from both recycling sources and then helping the nickel mines that we do have here in the States that are not operating, potentially help them to operate faster or, or cleaner or more efficiently. And so that's where we'll be able to make up that that uh, that gap and really, um, again, the compliant piece is I think the most important that a lot of folks don't realize was in that Inflation Reduction Act. You've mentioned that Encycle might be the only company that could provide that domestically sourced nickel by 2024, um, but I know there have been so many companies that have been started in the battery recycling space, including some that are really well financed. So. What makes Encycle different from those other big battery recycling players that have gotten started in the past few years? Yeah, that's a great question. So the other large players in the battery recycling space are all taking a very different approach to providing domestic material to the market. They're all very much needed steps, um, but you can think of them as taking the vertical integration strategy, right? They're trying to go all the way from collection to mechanically processing to chemically processing to making a cathode active material, which is the basically the precursor material before that metal would go into a, a cathode, or they're trying to make the cathodes themselves. And so create going specifically battery to battery. That is, again, a very much needed strategy, but Encycle is taking the approach and looking at the market much more holistically. And when you look at batteries, even if you recycled 100% of them in 2030, you would still only get a fraction of that compliant nickel that you actually need to meet the full demand. And so our technology allows us and our business model allows us to go to basically any type of nickel-heavy scrap. So batteries is is one of them, but we also look at all those other different types of scraps that I mentioned before. Um, that will allow us to get to that, you know, demand level that we need. So really fill, you know, at least 100,000 tons of that nickel demand over the next several years. And because our technology is different and we are just a technology provider, we can get our technology out in a matter of months versus these large companies, which are using very traditional technology just pulled from the mining industry. And that technology takes anywhere from, you know, four to 10 years to build out. And so they they did start building uh, many years ago, but still won't be operational at least till the end of 2024, if not 2025. And so, you know, that's really the big differentiators between us and those other players is we're not vertically integrated. So we don't necessarily see ourselves as direct competitors. We are really just trying to provide a much uh, cleaner, uh, more efficient way to chemically refine these materials. And then our ability to go to a variety of different feedstocks, whether it's batteries or any other type of, of metal feedstock. And then, you know, as we move forward in the mining space. Got it. Because your units are distributed and modular and relatively small, you can go to where the feedstock is uh, versus building giant centralized systems where the feedstock has to go to, which I imagine there's a lot of danger and downsides in that transportation process. Exactly. And even in the way the technology works, it just allows us to have a much wider funnel at the front end and be able to process a wide variety of things. And then, yes, as you said, being modular, we can go on site into a lot of these regional places where shipping waste might not have been economical or was very dangerous, right? Shipping lithium-ion batteries is one of the largest issues we have with them. Um, If you think about, right, all of the 
unfortunate, you know, uh, videos we we likely saw in mainstream media of them just spontaneously combusting, whether it was on your bed or in a plane or God forbid where else. Um, so you can imagine shipping lots of those in a truck all jostling together at their end of life, right? That causes a lot of uh, explosions, unfortunately. And so we, yes, take the technology to wherever that waste is located versus having to ship it all to one centralized facility. And those large centralized facilities, unfortunately, the only way that they can be built out is to process a very narrow band of materials. And so, again, it really limits them to being able to only process batteries, which, again, making cathodes is a very needed thing here in the United States. But we're trying to solve the the real supply-demand issue, not necessarily the, the need for manufacturing uh, of batteries domestically. In September, Encycle began operating its first commercial-scale electro-extraction unit, which you mentioned earlier, called Oyster. And that moment came on the heels of Encycle forming tentative partnerships with some e-waste recycling companies and North American copper and cobalt mining companies. What's it been like forming those partnerships? I think it's been, especially post-IRA, right, really exciting to think about the potential that we have for producing these domestic critical materials, whether it's uh, from scrap materials or from the mining industry, right? I think when folks think about the U.S., they don't think of us as a very mining-friendly place (laughs) for a long time, which, you know, to be fair, we were using, you know, pretty horrendous processes to mine. So everyone was like, well, not in my backyard. And now I think that this legislation has, has really pushed us to rethink what our industry looks like, not just from a mining perspective, but from the critical mineral supply chain in general. And that's really exciting for us as somebody who's been in this space for five years and really been pushing for this. And I think the IRA, again, really just opened people's eyes to how big these issues are and and how fast we need to solve them. And so, you know, building these partnerships is is really just the next step in us having that big impact that, you know, we've we've always hoped for. Transitioning to reflections on what you've learned thus far since you started Encycle five years ago. Uh, So about 30 people on the team today. What have you learned about hiring since you started the company? Yeah, hiring is a lot harder than it looks. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we learned that the hard way. Unfortunately, I think most people you meet will probably say that. Um, But, you know, when you, I feel like when a lot of founders set out to build a company Um, culture might not be the top thing that you think about, although I think it should be one of the top things that you think about. Um, It does take time. It does take a lot of energy. And there's a lot of thought that I put into what our culture looks like because, again, you could have the best technology in the entire world, but if you don't have the team to to help you bring it out into the world, it will never see the light of day. And so building that team from the ground up is is one of the most important things. And I think hiring, recruiting is all part of that. Uh, But when a new person steps into your office and the the environment or the vibe is as people say like they they feel is is so impactful and helps in that process right and i think a lot of folks got we all got stuck uh, recruiting virtually for so long, and that was really hard to like be able to find people with that cultural fit, right, of the the values that you set out and write down on a piece of paper that might not be meaningful to anyone else except for you. Um, but finding people that embody those values is so, so important, especially your first like 10, 20 hires and even beyond that, right? If you have one, they say if you have one bad egg, it could you could ruin the whole company. And I think that's very true. Um because you're all working towards this this one goal, but it's a very hard road. And if you're not all there in it together for the same reasons, it can it can fall down very quickly. And so trying to build that mentality into the hiring process was really hard. And um, I was very 
anxious to let that piece go um, and bringing somebody else in to help me hire because it was so important to me. Um, and so it was critical for me to find the right people um, to help me with that process and to really establish, you know, what it is that we are looking for, right? To actually verbalize it, write it down, help people think like, what am I looking for when I'm interviewing? Because it's, it's of course, you want them to have the technical skills or business development skills or whatever position you're hiring for. But then the people skills is also, or like just the the ability to to see the vision and to fit in with the team is also a really critical thing that I, I don't want to say I took for granted, but definitely didn't um, think about as much at the beginning. And if you could go back five years to when you were starting the company, what advice would you give yourself? I would tell myself, um, again, going back to the fundraising piece, because I think that is just so painful for so many founders, right? Nobody likes to fundraise, even though that's the major part of our job as founder and CEO, um, is start to build those relationships really early. It is it is really all about getting to know the future funds. And, and even if they're not going to invest, like they will help you find people who would be interested, who are the right you know size checks, who are the right fit for whatever market you're in. I think it is so powerful to have that one champion and, and even outside of fundraising, right? Um, having those those champions in your corner um, who can speak volumes of, of who you are and, you know, what you're trying to do with this company is is really, really powerful. And I think those people who, who are in our corner have helped us so tremendously. Like I will never be able to thank them enough. And so make sure that you find that that community of people that are there to help stand you up on the hardest of days and to celebrate you on the best of days. Um, and it sounds so obvious, but it's a lot of people don't think like, you know, I, I can do it all myself. Like, no, 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 mm-hmm. you can't. <laughs> and you don't, you shouldn't want to. Um, Cause there's so many people out there who have done this so many times before and can help you identify the, 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 the things that you might stumble over or the other things that you might need to look out for. And so I think it's just really helpful to have, you know, lots of other sets of eyes, you know, out there with you. Um, so that would be my advice. You just, just try and do that earlier um, in my in the process of starting EndCycle. Um, speaking of the best days and the worst days, what was the worst day at EndCycle so far? Oh, that's a good question. The worst day at EndCycle, I think, was probably the day that we had a big safety incident. And a couple of my chemical engineers I thought were really hurt. So part of our process um, uses a chemical that can sometimes off-gas chlorine gas. And if you inhale that, it's obviously very dangerous for you. And we had an incident where a couple of my engineers um, did accidentally inhale chlorine gas, and I had to take them to the ER. And that was a really, really scary moment for me and probably one of my lowest days of like, these people are are trusting their lives with me and I'm like letting this happen. And of course, we have a very big culture of safety, but sometimes, you know, accidents happen. And so that was really, um, that was really horrendous. And that was a really low day, I think, for everyone on the team. We were all just really scared. And, and you know, thankfully, we had all the, the policies and procedures in place to get them right to the hospital. And um, everything is fine. They were, they were totally fine. But that was just a really low point for me is like, you sometimes you forget that like all of these people are there for you and, and the company that you built and the technology that you're developing and and that or that you brought to the table and um, so it just felt a lot of weight on me for that um, and that was that was really scary day. Mm. What advice would you give to other CEOs who have been in that in that situation or find themselves in that situation? Which anything hard and anything in the hardware space, you know, things are dangerous and can go wrong and it's more common than I think we often talk about. But yeah, what advice would you give other founders? Yeah, I think um, it takes time. And I feel like 
that's like the most precious thing that anyone has is time. And as founders, you feel like you never have time. Like, I wish there were so many more hours in a day. Um, and building out a safety culture takes time uh, and it takes dedication. And we hired a consultant. We did all of these things that cost time and money, but I really, really think it was super important to focus on and to every single day have my entire team, including myself, go out and iterate to people like, if you do not feel safe, do not continue. Like, yes, we are trying to sprint to getting this this unit or whatever our next milestone is out the door, but it is never more important than your safety. And so repeating that over and over and over again, and, and it was surprising to hear that that my, some of my employees had never heard that at previous companies. And I said, no, no, no. Like, I know that this might seem like the most important thing in the world, but trust me, like, it is not. Like, your safety is by far the number one thing. And so just having that, I think I keep saying culture, like culture of safety is so important so that if something, if somebody feels uncomfortable, they can ask a question. If somebody doesn't feel like they can do that, ask a question, ask for help. Um, because the, the last thing you want is somebody who's unsure about the procedure and then going into that and then being, you know, nervous on top of it being already, you know, an unsafe thing to do. So, um, I think that's something that we we tried to implement very early on, and um, hopefully we'll continue to do that over time because I do think it's it's really important and it is worth the time. Yeah, agreed. What's been the single best day so far? I think the single best day so far has been when our commercial oyster started running and started producing. So our, our cobalt nickel product is a very like vibrant blue color. And so when you started to see that vibrant blue metal product coming out, like I, I think I started crying because it was just like, <laughs> oh my God, it works. Like, like I've spent five years trying to do this and uh, this amazing team that I've assembled has has finally done it and it works and it's out there. And then I called Colin immediately, my PR guy, um, <laughs> to be like, time for the press release. Um <laughs> Um, because I was so excited. So, um, yeah, I think it's just so many years of work and so many hard days leading to that, you know, really exciting moment when like you flip the switch and it just, it works as you expected it to is like, you can't beat that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, has your leadership style changed since you started End Cycle? I think I've been growing into things that I, maybe naturally felt all along, but was afraid to really lean into. Um, and so I think as a female founder, I was always really afraid to have uh, a lot of empathy and um, to really trust my gut. And I, and with the help of a lot of the the community that I mentioned before and, and some really great executive coaches, you know, really learning to like lean into those feelings and to, and to be uh, not afraid to, to really lead the way that I feel like I should lead, which is, um, you know, people first, right? It's a technology company, but if again, like, I really started to lean into like the people first culture and um, being okay with like who I am as a leader, and that you know, it, I always felt like people would think of me as like too girly as a CEO or something, and I had to get over that mentality of like, no, this is what good leaders do: is they listen to their people and they manage people for who they are, and not just as robots, right? And that everybody hears information differently. And that everybody, um, you know, deserves to to feel like they're important every day, which seems so obvious, but it was something that I was um, afraid to lean into for a long time um, until, again, members of my community really helped me sort of step into that, like the leader that I that I wanted to be and, and no longer was afraid to be. Mm, I love that. Um, you mentioned being a founder and CEO who's a woman and we're operating in an industry that is majority white, majority male. Can you speak to your experience as a white woman leading in a company in our industry with those demographics? 
Unfortunately, yeah, I think adding to to being a female uh, founder, I was also a very young founder, so I was only 27 when I started the company. And so going to conferences with my male counterparts, because uh, I was in that Department of Energy program I mentioned before, which I was the only female in that in my cohort. So it was it was four other men. And we te- we tended to go to the same, you know, climate tech conferences because we were all in the same circle. And uh, the question that I got all the time was, oh, whose wife are you? Or, you know, um, yeah. So I was always asked, like, wow. um, instead of me being treated or looked at as one of the CEOs or founders um, alongside the four other men that I was with, they all thought I was somebody's wife. Um, so that is a question that I still get today, um, which is very sad. Um, and I, you know, try to be as positive as I can when I get that and try to, like, educate people, like, no, like, you know, I'm just the CEO of another company, but um, nice to meet you. Um, but it is hard being the only woman uh, in, you know, the boardroom or the only woman in a customer meeting, um, especially when we have mining clients, right? It's, it's we're trying to not just redefine what the refining industry looks like, but also redefine what a company in the tech world looks like. And I think I'm still one of the only female CEOs in all of battery recycling, right? It's not just uh, old mining industry. It's also the new startups in the space. Like I, I, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to see that. And I hope, you know, more women make it up into those leadership positions, but we're trying to change that, you know, slowly day by day. Um, but that's just one of the experiences that I've had. And I faced others where, um, I was in pitch competitions and I would get, um, instead of getting feedback on how well I was pitching or what I could say better, or um, I was getting comments on my wardrobe. And I said, well, are the other male CEOs getting comments on their wardrobe or is it just me because I'm the only female? And so it's, it's things like that where it's unfortunate and it's, and it's like, why is this still happening? It's 2022. Um, and I would really love you know, your, your feedback on, on how I'm communicating um, my company and, and the value proposition. But um, you know, I think it's getting hopefully better every day, and I start to see, and I hopefully this things like this and this podcast uh, help um, you know other female founders or, or females thinking of starting a company feel like they can, um, and so that's um, hopefully something that that Uncycle is also doing. Mm, I'm sure you are. I've always believed that if you can see it, you can be it, and so um, you know, underrepresented people and women seeing founders like you and knowing that you can do it even in an industry where you might be the only one or you might be the first, uh, but that, that that won't be the case forever. Um, what advice would you have for underrepresented founders, including women in the industry? I would say very similar to the advice I gave earlier or something that I would have told myself earlier is, is find that community because there are people out there who will help you stand up in a crowd that you might not feel comfortable in or help you, uh, you know, get into a room that you might not have otherwise been able to get into because of who you are or what you look like. Um, and it's, it's those people that can really help you get through those hard days. Um, and, just help you, you know, figure out the next step and how to react to certain things that might not be fair, but um, are unfortunately still out there. And so those champions that I have, again, in my corner are amazing. And I have an amazing executive co- uh, executive coach who happens to be a female founder herself. And so just learning from her and leaning on her is, has been really, really helpful. Um, and so I can't, I can't express enough um, for the other female and underrepresented founders out there to find, you know, your champions because they are out there. Um, you know, I, uh, work with a couple of their founders myself of, of like, even though I'm not that experienced, I at least have five years of, I can help you, you know, figure out the really early days, uh, because you can never have too many people to lean on. Um, I say. 
Well said. Megan, you mentioned your fiance, now husband. So you are uh, a partner to him and a founder and CEO of Encycle, and you're doing those things at the same time. What has it been like doing both at once? It's hard. <laughs> I think we'll both tell you it's really hard. Um, uh, work-life balance is a real thing, especially right when you're a founder, entrepreneur, whatever position you are in a startup, it's, it's hard to have that work-life balance. And so I would say early on, I failed miserably at, at figuring out what that was. And I think over time, um, figuring out, you know, uh, that it is okay to shut your phone off when you go home and it is okay, right? Those couple hours are not going to make a difference, right? There are certain days where I have to work late, especially when I'm fundraising and there's people across the world that we're talking to, right? Different time zones. It, it's hard to not work late, but, um, you know, for the vast majority of your time when you're not fundraising, um, you know, take take the time, you know, take, turn your phone off, turn your computer off and, and really be present. Um, because if you're not, uh, for too long, right, that that's when it gets really painful. And, um, you know, it's just really building in that time for your spouse, your family, your kids, whoever you have at home, or even if it's just your family or your friends, like I tried to build time in for, for all of that, because if you don't, um, you know, you're not going to be happy even when you, when you emerge at the other side, whether your company is successful or not, right. Your family is, is, is everything. Megan, what will the future of critical minerals processing look like a decade from now? I hope it looks like the oyster. <laughs> um, <laughs> our real our vision for Encycle has always been to be the refining or processing technology uh, or method to use for any type of, of feedstock, whether it's in the mining space or in the recycling space, because we do need to process these materials chemically much more sustainably and much more efficiently if we truly want to build the clean energy economy as clean as we've always envisioned it. And so that's really what we're trying to do and what we hope critical mineral processing looks like 10, 20, 30 years out from today. And if Encycle succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? If Encycle succeeds, the the company uh, will be worldwide. We'll have headquarters not just here in Boston, but also in Europe and hopefully uh, other places around the world as well and, and really making a big impact. And so we don't expect the team to grow terribly much because we we will be able to remotely operate our systems, but to have you know a global footprint uh, because mining happens everywhere, not just here in North America. We're going to close with my favorite part, which is our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning like a couple seconds or a couple words, starting with, Megan, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh my God, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know why cheetah comes to mind, but I would be a cheetah because they're very fast and efficient. Nice. What inspires you? My team. My team inspires me. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Oh, I do know this one. Um, after Encycle, I would love to start a nonprofit to focus on underrepresented female in females in STEM. Um, so that's my dream after Encycle. I love it. I love it. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My mom. What's your mom's name? Charlene. All right, Charlene. Uh, tell me about a specific time that you failed. So many to choose from. Um, <laughs> um, a specific time that I failed was, I would say, hiring the wrong person to lead part of my team. And that was really painful. Mm. I feel like everyone who has started a company has made that mistake at least once. So mm -hmm. yeah, I get that. Uh, what lesson has taken the longest to learn? To... 
move slowly for certain things. I am a very fast mover in all aspects of my life, and that doesn't always work. Sometimes you have to sit down and think about certain things. Um, and so to to take things slowly is something that I'm still learning today very painfully because I like to move at the speed of light. <laughs> it's hard when you're a cheetah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> uh, what's the best investment you've ever made? Ooh. Um, best investment I ever made was in my executive coach. Hmm. I shout out to executive coaching. I've been doing it for maybe six years and it's life-changing. It is. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Something that I thought was true was that people wouldn't take me seriously because I'm a female founder. Who has had the biggest influence on your life and work and why? I think the person that has had the biggest influence on my life has been, I think, my mom, again, Charlene. Shout out to Charlene. I don't know if she <laughs> listens to my podcast. Um, I'm sure she will. <laughs> <laughs> but she always taught me to, to like, be the leader, to be, like, fearless and fierce and all the things that she never had the chance to be. And so that was really impactful for me. And then I think the person who has had the biggest impact on my company in my career here. His name is John Brooke. He was one of my very early uh, advocates and, and champions in my corner. So I hope he also listens to this. Um, but he, I mean, just anything I needed him for, like the dumbest question in the world, I could go to him and he would have zero judgment. Um, and so that was amazing to just have that early on when I, again, literally knew nothing about starting a business. Mm. What is your worst trait? My worst trait is probably... Uh, tied to how fast I move, I get really angry when people can't move as fast as me. So I'm like, people call me hyper aggressive, um, which I like to think of as a positive thing, but I do think it's a terrible trait that I have. So I'm like, why can't we do this faster? Um, So that is, yeah, not a great trait that I have. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, I would take out uh, related to end cycle, I would take out the politics related to climate change. I think it just slows everything down. And so if we could just cut that out and just look at the science as science shows that things are happening and going the wrong direction, um, I think that's what I would change first. Mm-hmm. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? I think if there was just one person, I would want it to be probably a young female founder maybe sitting trying to figure out what she's going to do or if she can do this and just like say to her like yes you can and it's hard but like we're all here for you um and you can do this and you're amazing i love it what is your best quality i never give up <laughs> it's probably tied to my aggressiveness i will ha- i have to do things to completion um so whether that's good or bad um but I am very determined to, to whatever the ending is, uh, I always like to, to do things to my best ability. Um, and that's how I feel about Encycle is like, we will figure out a way for this to work because it has to. The world needs a better way to do this. And it does even if it's not Encycle, like I will help to be part of that solution one way or another. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... The CEO thinks that they can do it all. Mm-hmm. If you really knew me, you would know that I love dogs a lot. Do you have a dog? I do. He's a 
105 pound Great Pyrenees, and he's a big oh. fluffball. <laughs> What's his name? His name is Herbie. Herbie. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Success is being happy and about what you do every day, right? Mm. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have been more fearless early on in my career. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be end cycle. I'm most proud of the team that I've been able to assemble. And last sentence, to build a successful startup, what it takes is a successful team and the network and community around you because you can't do it alone. It takes a village. Perfect way to end, Megan. I have so enjoyed this conversation and getting to know you better and end cycle. And I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing in the world. Thank you. Megan O'Connor is the CEO and co-founder of EnthCycle. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, Google Nest Renew. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener Dan, with a bunch of numbers after his name, who said... What It Takes hosts insightful and actionable conversations that ignite a deep desire to seek change in the world. Their guests are incredible and bring unique perspectives on how to build our climate-positive future. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse works with global corporations and investors to help them find and engage with startups that have the technology that they're looking for. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse. You can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can now support the making of this show with a donation via our website, powerhouse.fund forward slash what it takes, or by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcast. We read and appreciate all of the reviews, and we read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who might like this episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth help produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. Lastly, in the spirit of this time of year, I want to say thank you. We make the show for you, and I'm grateful to be in your ears. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.